Welcome back to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. This is a continuation of my discussion with Dennis Gorbach about the situation, current situation and historical context of the conflict in Ukraine, the Russian invasion. I'll be back in just a few seconds. So once again, Dennis Gorbach is a doctoral candidate at the Institute of Political Studies, Sciences Po in Paris. His uh, research focuses on the politics of the Ukrainian working class. He's a member of the Editorial Collective of Commons, a Ukrainian socialist website. Previously, he worked as an economic journalist in the Ukrainian press. Thanks for joining me again, Dennis. Thank you for having me. First of all, if you haven't watched part one, you really should. This is a, a continuation of that conversation. Um, be, before we get into the events of 2014, which is a, one of the arguments that much of the Euro, world left give, and, and, and Russia too, uh, that a right-wing coup essentially uh, overthrew a constitutionally elected government in an unconstitutional way, um, and that's the events that are happening now are one of the consequences of that. But before we get into that, let me go back to something you said in part one. Uh, if you see this to a large extent as ideologically driven by Putin and, and the people that support him, uh, in other words, I guess you're saying the ideology of great power, great power chauvinism, I, uh, empire, uh, if I'm, am I understanding correctly? The, what, well, what is the ideology? So yes, this is uh, what you might call imperial nationalism. Uh, so yes, there is uh, one thing is uh, the ideology of great power that it is uh, that Russia is a country that is predestined to command uh, vast uh, vast swaths of land and sea and 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 it has it has a very special destiny. Uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, second of all, it is uh, it is uh, nationalism nationalism that is primordial. Uh, that is, uh, I mean, you know, there is this distinction between two kinds of nationalisms: so the civic and ethnic one. Uh, and um, what we see in Russia, as well as um, uh, sadly often in Ukraine, uh, is is the understanding of a nation as uh, as a as an eternal entity that that is uh, almost timeless that ex that existed uh, thousands uh, literally sometimes thousands year, years uh, from now uh, so for putin there is uh, this idea of empire plus the idea of the historical continuity so for example ukraine is also important for him he says this he has been saying it for for many times, because uh, Kiev is uh, uh, is known as uh, the mother of the Russian cities. I mean, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it would be interesting to discuss the, this whole uh, story of medieval uh, medieval spaces uh, in the place of contemporary Russia and Ukraine. But the short story is that uh, Kiev was the, the capital of this medieval formation, principality of Rus. Um, from which both Russia and Ukraine and incidentally Belarus, uh, all the all three uh, um, consider this uh, con consider that uh, principality as uh, its uh, the source of its uh, statehood. Uh, in the Soviet times, the dominating conception was 
that uh, was uh, the cradle of uh, the shared cradle of the three uh, uh, nations: Russian, Ukrainian, and Belarusian. Um, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, the renewed version of history dominating in Russia um, basically resuscitated the previous uh, the previous one, which was dominating un under the empire. That is that it is uh, the monopoly of of Russian people, which is much larger than than the Russian people, and uh, which is much larger than Russians per se, because it includes also the Belarusians and and Ukrainians. So this is why this insistence on uh, the fact that we are we are basically one people. There is no there, there, there is no um, difference between us which can be read by an external uh, viewer as uh, as a message of peace like you know we're all brothers because we're all brothers as humanity as a humanity and so and so on and so forth there are no nations but in this context this means in fact this establishment of uh, of imperial domination because you are as ukrainians you don't exist you are, you you are in fact russians who have been duped by uh, Austrian Hungarian uh, general staff, or today by the uh, I don't know U.S. Uh, U.K. also uh, uh, by by the Foreign Office in the U.K. For example, uh, you have been duped into believing that you are something which you call Ukrainians, something separate from 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 Russians. So this is also an important element of this uh, of of this type of nationalism of this ideology. And is it different than the American nationalism and, and view of a you know the, the need of the world to have essentially American hegemony? In terms of uh, the ultimate uh, aim of establishing hegemony, no. So I mean, so, uh, in, in this sense, this is more or less the I guess the same uh, uh, the same ambition to yes to dominate. Uh, maybe 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 the US is a bit different because it it is a Hegemon. It is has been until recently, uh, uh, in fact, a hegemonic power in the international politics. That's why they rather claim uh, for the continuation of their monopoly worldwide. Uh, Russia is not that ambitious in this sense. I mean, I mean, the Russian imperialism uh, aims at uh, dividing the world into the zone into zones of influence, zones of exclusive interests. So their ideal is rather uh, the uh, pre-First World War uh, world, which was divided between, between the great powers. They only are mad because they are not allowed their place. They, they think they ought to be allowed into this great concert of nations. Well, you can't be a global hegemon if you allow regional hegemons unless they're sub-hegemons to you. Uh, otherwise, you're not the global hegemon anymore, uh, which I think is certainly one of the underlying causes of all this. Um, so let's just go back, though, to understand more than uh, Russians' motivation. So it, you, you have this sort of great power ambition. Uh, it can also be called treating Putin with respect. Uh, is the other way to phrase it. That, but I, I, I mean, personally, I think there's some truth to it. As I said in the part one, uh, if you're going to have a capitalist world, uh, 
a country with the size of population, the, the techno technological base, the resource base. I mean, this is a potentially much bigger power than it actually is. And I guess if it wasn't so uh, addicted to a, being a fossil fuel economy, uh, there's no reason why it shouldn't be uh, even more powerful than Germany is uh, economically. Uh, it, you know, it should, it isn't, but it should. Uh, but all that being said, that's not a justification for invading anybody. Um, and certainly not for attacking and killing civilians and soldiers. I, I, I wanna say and soldiers, because a lot of people focus on the killing of, so, of civilians. And I think it's just as much a crime to be killing Ukrainian and Russian working class kids who are told to go off and kill each other. Um, that being said, I don't get what the strategy was here. Um, you, 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 one, is this like an Afghan situation? Was he goaded, was Putin goaded into expanding what might've only been uh, uh, an occupation of Donbass? Did the Americans deliberately arm Ukraine and then use all this, he's going to invade, he's going to invade. So if he doesn't invade, he looks like he's backing down. You know, Afghanistan, Brzezinski says we sucked the Soviet Union into this war. Did he get sucked into this? Because I don't get what the end game is here. You install a pro-Russian government. Well, then if you don't occupy, that government doesn't last five minutes, I think. Um, if you don't install a pro-Russian government and you end up, even if you get what should have been done years ago, a declaration by Ukraine not to join NATO, that should have been done years ago, it should have been done months ago, weeks ago, and it should be done now, because it's never getting into NATO anyway. Even Zelensky admitted that a few days ago. So what, what is the point of making it an issue? An issue, And of course, the Americans should have declared it too. But still, if you don't have a pro-Russian government, you don't occupy, you pull back, even if you occupy Donbass, then what was the point of all this, given that you gave the West everything they wanted? a reunification of NATO, an excuse to attack the Russian economy in a way that they could never have done without this. I'm sure they would have loved to have do it at any point, but they couldn't justify it until now. And, and here's where you get another, be careful what you wish for West, a remilitarized Germany, which ain't gonna be good for the West or Russia, potentially in the long run. So what the hell was he th was Putin thinking? I don't get it. Well, yes, there is uh, there is this pattern of explanation which you which you've mentioned, uh, which is which I find a bit amusing uh, because it goes like this: uh, the uh, cunning Americans have uh, planned everything, so they somehow uh, hypnotized Putin and made him uh, put uh, made him spend a year putting the place in the troops along the border of Ukraine and manipulated him into invading Ukraine. So, I mean, this is, this is extremely uh, complicated, unnecessarily complicated. Yeah, I, I, I can't, I'm not sure that they're that smart, but... Um, so but, it's just that... I, but explain I it then. Know, I don't know what's your policy uh, on the profanities, but... Oh, you can, you can say what you want. If, yeah, it's in, in, in our part of the world, in Ukraine and in Russia, there is this uh, expression uh, when someone uh, finds himself in the position of Putin explaining all his faults by 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 the 
uh, by the evil will of, of the others is that has someone again shed in, into your pants? Mm -hmm. So, okay, but, so uh, but how, let's, how, let's yeah, say how it wasn't some like some deliberate plan. And I'm, I'm not saying it was or wasn't because it does seem like more than they're capable of. I still don't get how he thinks he wins out of this. Yeah, so um, it's from what we can see now, from what uh, is uh, ob likely obvious uh, at this point, is that there has been extremely uh, severe miscalculation of uh, of the situation in Ukraine. It see it looks like um, like uh, the higher leadership, like Putin personally, has been uh, almost duped by his own uh, propaganda. Um, with, uh, without so they, he did not have access uh, to realistic evaluation of the situation on the ground. It is so. On the one hand, there is a, there is a leaked uh, text by a Russian by by someone at least claiming to be a Russian FSB uh, officer who states as much. I'm not sure whether we can trust it, uh, whether we can take it at face value or no or not. If we take it at face value, it says that exactly this is what happened: that the secret service, the FSB, the um, intelligence services, have been basically uh, um, decorating, have been doctoring their reports because uh, nobody told them to be actually that they were, they were expected to realistically assess this uh, uh, option of invasion. So this is why uh, they were they were giving their reports in a more optimistic, uh, under more optimistic source, just to be, just, uh, just to keep, uh, to keep the bosses calm. Because uh, if, if they had known that, that this is an, a realistic option, they would be more serious about it. But otherwise they saw no use in, 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 in making uh, bosses angry. There's some believability in that when you see this moment that was on television where Putin has these heads of his I guess it's cabinet and heads of agencies and the head of his foreign it's intelligence service is dressed down like a 12 year old embarrassed schoolboy in front of Putin. I mean, if that's the way he talks to the people that are supposed to be giving him advice, then yeah, you guess they're saying what he, they think he wants to hear. And, and uh, there is also an indirect uh, evidence, which is more objective, uh, which is uh, the way uh, in which uh, the invasion had been has been planned uh, militarily, from the from the way uh, in which basically the tanks uh, the tanks and, and other equipment rolled in um, without without any so they didn't take care of uh, of they didn't take any precautions so they 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 were just rolling along the road and letting themselves be be hit. By, uh, uh, by by Ukrainian forces because they certainly they didn't expect to be hit. They 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 were doing it like like they like they were still in Russia. Uh, the so so, so there were there were uh, also when 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 we look at the first hours and the first days, it was obvious that they expected to uh, not waste any forces uh, on uh, on fights. Uh, Anywhere out, anywhere except Kiev. The aim is to to capture Kiev very quickly in one or two of maximum three days uh, to establish uh, the puppet government in the capital 
and uh, uh, this should have been the end of the story. And they must have thought there'd be significant support for it in Ukraine. I mean, Zelensky yes. was down, what, at about 24% in the polls. He was considered a real failure as a president. Of course, now he's a 80% or whatever in the polls. He's a hero. But before, his government did look like a disaster. They, so they thought this was going to be a popular cakewalk. Exactly, yes. Also, again, a third thing to consider is um, in, to consider in favor of this uh, theory is uh, Putin's uh, appeal to Ukrainian military. I don't remember which day of the invasion it was, but some at some early stage, but when it was already clear that it was not going the way it was supposed to go, he said that, yeah, so I'm uh, now I'm, 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 I'm talking to Ukrainian military men. Yeah, just to get rid of this uh, band of uh, drug users and Nazis and, and get the uh, uh, stage a coup, because with you, you are certainly a serious man and with you, we will reach uh, an understanding uh, more easily, which again shows an utter lack of understanding of Ukraine, what it is politically, what is the situation in the military, because uh, yeah, so there, there, there was simply a complete lack of uh, the data plus there was a memory of the 2014 uh, hostilities and it, it should be said that ukraine in 2014 is very different from the ukraine in 2022 meaning that that in 2014 ukraine had no ability to resist the uh what happened this, in crimea this so the yes the lack lack of uh, military capacities but also the lack of uh, this uh, unity. So in 2014 there was no problem with establishing uh, occupational administration, for example. Currently this is a, a big problem for the Russian forces who who are currently holding the Melitopol, Kherson, and some other cities that they control. When it's so obvious that Ukraine was not going to be allowed into NATO formally, at least, meaning no Article 5, which is significant. Um, and even Zelensky, as I said in part one, has admitted that a few days ago. Um, there were lots of people in Ukraine in the weeks leading up to the invasion and before demand, you know, saying Ukraine should declare neutrality right now, get it off the table. And Zelensky wouldn't do it. Uh, was it simply because he was afraid if he did it, he'd be overthrown himself? This is the yes, yes. This 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 uh, is the case very much uh, because uh, uh, he is uh, much more. He's probably much more uh, constrained in his potential in his in his options than than it might seem from from the outside. He he looks uh, he looks like a like, like an extremely uh, a determined uh, young man, um, but it's it's just that he does not have uh, a second option. Um, the situation is in this uh, the dominating mood in the society is such that if uh, before the invasion he would suddenly do this U-turn, um, he would be uh, he. he he would face a very real possibility of a, of a nationalist coup. And, and so talk about the strength of the right-wing nationalists. And I guess this will get us back to 2014 to some extent. 
And amongst right-wing nationalists, there's a lot of out-and-out fascists. Uh, There's a video out there of this guy on uh, one of the Ukrainian television channels that's still on because a few have been taken off because they were considered pro-Russian. And this guy's talking about killing uh, Russian Muscovite children. He overtly quotes Eichmann saying the way to kill a nation is to kill its children and says he personally wants to go kill Russian children. Now, I know this in no way represents the vast majority of Ukrainian people, but there's probably more overt Nazis in an organized fashion and even in the military. And now looking like they even have a TV channel. I mean, it's, it's more significant than a lot of other countries. And, and I have to say, again, my leftist Russian friends point to this, that this is something, you know, the, the strength of, of, of fascists and Nazis in Ukraine is a sig- more significant thing than people in other countries might think. So I would, I would uh, like to divide this question in two, because these are, these are two, there are two different things here. I will first uh, uh, speak a little bit about that guy, because uh, this is, I mean, he is visibly not uh, a part of the of the Ukrainian Nazi scene. I mean, this is uh, at least to, to 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 me this is this is evident. Uh, this here is is a dreadful, um, horrible manifestation of the general growth of 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 these xenophobic attitudes in the wider wider society as the war progresses. So the guy, is the, the, I don't know who he is, some, just some random journalist. Uh, uh, yes, he says uh, these extremely stupid and barbaric uh, things, uh, quoting Eichmann, even putting on, putting his uh, portrait uh, to make sure that we make no mistake. Um, this is, uh, I'm, 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 I'm sorry, I'm, I'm afraid to say that this is probably uh, natural as said it is as it is uh, in a war like this to that, that, that the enemy is dehumanized and we have the precedence for this in the Soviet history because uh, at the beginning of the Second World War um, the Soviet leadership was extremely careful extremely politically uh, correct uh, even after the after Hitler invaded uh, the official propaganda line was that, that the Germans we, we are brothers with the German working class, and it is Hitler who divides us, and so on and so forth. But by the end of the war, there was, there was this famous poem by, uh, by, the, by, by Sergei Eisenstein, which uh, with, with the refrain, uh, kill the German, uh, kill the German as, as many times as you, can, as you see him. This is the plea of your mother. This is the plea of, of the burned village, and so on and so forth. So, so very bloodthirsty. And the party, uh, the Communist Party, uh, reprimanded him say, uh, publicly. So said sa- 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 that Comrade Eisenstein exaggerates. But this was the, the general mood, as sad it is it, as it gets. And so this well, let me what... let me just add to that: Americans cheered the firebombing and nuclear bombing of Japanese civilians in World War II. So this is not uh, <laughs> unique. It's off. Right. Yes. So, and 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 the longer the war uh, lasts, the the, so the the greater would will be such mood. So, 
basically the only way to prevent this whole thing is not to to say that oh bad ukrainians but rather to to make sure this uh, the, this ends as soon as possible now the second thing is the actual actual nazis uh, so the structures the political part, uh, political movements of uh, of an extreme right of a nazi fascist character this is an uh, this is certainly a great problem in ukraine and uh, your russian friends are at least partially right in attributing it to the euromaidan events it was not a nazi coup that that one is that one i can say okay for sure. people that aren't that familiar we're talking about the uh, essentially a coup that took place in 2014 uh, that that a lot of people start their history of what's happening now from there and there's these competing documentaries that people are probably seeing there's one documentary that ascribes everything that went wrong to this right wing uh fascist groups that took over this democratically uh that i shouldn't say this elected government that ch changed its mind about europe anyway you explain it yes i will try <laughs> so um so yeah what happened at that point was uh as we as as, as we have seen in the, in the first part of our talk there was this growing polarization inside the country uh, around uh, between the two identitarian projects between the two identities uh, and uh, and the president Yanukovych he was not exactly pro-Russian uh, he was he he, he uh, in, in his foreign policy he wanted to join the EU but then he faced uh, this pressure from from outside from Russia and finally he was forced to reconsider to make this horrible to make this U-turn which uh, which was which was met with outrage by the society because previously during a year or a year and a half this very same Yanukovych was telling them from every from every TV channel how great uh, European Union is and how we are moving towards that uh, aim. Uh, so this U-turn uh, makes people uh, get into the streets. And uh, what kind of people were in these streets? Um, the, here we we should again uh, remember about, remember the specificity of the post-Soviet working class, which is extremely uh, depoliticized. I mean, people people can be politicized in in the sense of their uh, interest to politics as a show, but precisely as a show. So they do not uh, for them politics is something external is a world uh, outside of their concern is. Um, a game of uh, of uh, ideologies and of manipulations so when people take to the streets like they do in ukraine once in a while they do so uh, with a very simplistic very vague picture political picture in uh, in their in their heads so they protest against uh, everything which is bad which is what corruption in the first place so something very un undescribable you cannot pin it down what is corruption what is not i mean okay it's difficult at least um, and they protest in favor of whatever they think is vaguely good so what is vaguely good in this in their situation was um, was europe the idea of europe which is which for them was the embodiment of uh, simply good life of economic prosperity of uh, the rule of law 
uh, and of a general high level of culture. And, and there's, I mean, a, there's a background to this too, which is years and years and years in the Soviet Union and the East, uh, these countries all had these dreams about uh, the West being paradise. And, uh, you know, I did a documentary film in Albania in, in 8990. And I, I remember this quote from a, a high school student who said to me, we know it's the West isn't paradise, but we don't know what it lacks from paradise. And they, they knew it was probably an illusion, but the illusion was better than the alternative. So you, you, you hope for the best of the illusion. Exactly, yes. So, so there is this, this uh, extremely idealized uh, vision of West and more specifically Europe, European Union as something, as, 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 something as, as much more than, than it is in fact as an organization uh, and uh, it is it gets then uh, the civilized civilizational undertones the undertones of uh, the civilizational struggle between the the par the economic and political paradise uh, of the west being the manifestation of the superior uh, european civilization and russia being somehow antinomic to all this all Russia slash Soviet Union because this is this is all very mixed this gets very mixed up um, so this is kind of externalized uh, as, a, as the other the civilizational other uh, from this it is still very far uh, to, to, to call to call these people racists and so on so this is just very disoriented people with no political agenda at all with a very rudimentary understanding of uh, of ideologies, uh, of whatever ideology they they declare to adhere to, and uh, in this uh, in this within this uh, crowd, like many millions of people standing in the in, the, in this square, who have nothing more than uh, flags, the national the flags in their hands, and maybe the flags of the EU, and no other more specific ideas. There you see uh, one extremely small, like numer numerically marginal group of of people who have who have uh, specific, very specific ideas politically. So they they say that yeah, we have some uh, clear uh, agenda. Uh, we present you this agenda. It and it in fact it doesn't look very frightful. It doesn't look scary. It's uh, more it's about the domination of nation, the uh, national interests. Okay, that probably sounds legitimate. Yeah, nation, sure, why not? Um, so they present, they they offered some kind of clarity, but even more importantly, they offered organizational structure, which lacked elsewhere. And, and these, uh, these are these are right wing nationalists. Yes, 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 yes. The mostly football hooligans uh, and, and 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 the far right, so the far right football hooligans. Yeah. Well, they may mm. be the on the street, but there's got to be some oligarchs and and clearly from some of the leaked phone calls, the Americans have a finger here and maybe more than that. So somebody's sort of helping organize this and plan it. By the by, the beginning of this uh, whole story. Uh, most of the far-right scene was uh, concentrated under the roof of one uh, party called Svoboda, Freedom in Ukraine. Uh, this party indeed had uh, very tight connections uh, 
to the uh, oligarchs, uh, they were, one could say with a certain degree of, uh, of certainty that they were promoted deliberately by the, by the uh, this Slavic government of Yanukovych as their antipodes. So they were, they were certainly, there had been certainly backhand uh, deals uh, in order to, because they, they, they were very present in the, on the TV screens, uh, on the oligarchic TV screens as the carriers of this, of this agenda. Um, but the, the thing is uh, that uh, these far right, the, 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 the larger part of the far right at the beginning of the, of the Maidan events were actually quite passive because they were, they were following the uh, line of, of the institutional opposition which was like, yeah, sure, we are against uh, the bad government. Yeah, let's stand and, and just demand our rights and whatnot. Yeah, so it seemed like the, the, the most radical demand at that point from those people seemed to be early elections. It wasn't even yeah. a resign, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the, the far right, which organized itself, which, has, which, was, lately, which was later uh, known as uh, the right sector, in fact, uh, it was the it, it was a call an ad hoc coalition of everyone of all the Nazis who hated Svoboda, so who had previously refused to merge into this uh, vertical party structure controlled by um, by the institutional forces. So, uh, so these they, they were these were remnants of the old organization from all, old uh, structures from the nineties that were that had been pretty marginal in fact and uh, currently they saw it they saw an opening uh, for themselves as for phone calls and and other stuff frankly I, I i don't know what i mean yeah i i can't comment because i don't know about that uh, well there's this the there's a this le there's a text of a leaked call be uh, between us officials mm -hmm. uh, deciding who they wanted next this is before the coup takes place and they're deciding who they think the next leader should be oh yeah uh, but uh, that's yeah but the, the uh, but they didn't the victoria newland i guess or, oh yeah so the fact they use speech yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but so yeah but the, the 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 far right i i doubt very much that they were like pawns directly controlled manipulated it was much more spontaneous i mean there is uh, there there is nothing uh, strange about about a bunch of uh, of of marginal people who spent year who had spent years uh, training in the woods with the firearms and uh, used to wearing fatigues now that they see an opening for them finally yes yeah, sure they are the first and on the barricades and they are the first who start uh, throwing uh, molotov cocktails at the police that tries to that that, that is trying to uh, push uh, the crowd so so the police starts starts uh, advancing uh, at the crowd but then suddenly the crowd instead of, of standing still or moving back starts uh, so so there are all of a sudden uh, a number of young men who begin uh, throwing Molotov cocktails and this is the beginning of this radicalization uh, of of, of uh, the spiral of violence in the maidan so then there's a day that takes place where there's a march to the parliament buildings, uh, yeah. where there's oh, yeah. going to be these demands are going to be presented. 
And the government responds with even more violence after quite a bit of violence. Uh, and one of the narratives goes uh, that there were snipers shooting and these snipers, there's a debate, were the snipers uh, from the far right, were the snipers from the government? Uh, anyway, pick it up from there. What's your take? Yes, so there is, uh, there is this uh, announcement of the so-called peaceful, um, peaceful advance towards the parliament, and then it suddenly becomes much less peaceful. People uh, are moving uh, from the, the protesters uh, uh, advance to, what, to, to the parliament, which stands on the hill, uh, and then uh, the police, the right police starts attacking them, running down from the hill, so they get the advantage. And then suddenly uh, the one can hear the shots, the gunshots. Um, and, and yes, there is, uh, there is the, a large space for, for various, for all kinds of conspiracy theorizing about those snipers. From what, I mean, I'm not a specialist on that, um, so I didn't spend hours analyzing videos. Uh, from what, uh, from from the general knowledge that I have, it uh, seems uh, obvious that a there were snipers on the part of the riot police because these videos even I saw them. Uh, b there were guns uh, widely uh, accessible to the population uh, to the to the protesters as well. So there were the, the, there is nothing uh, that can. Uh, um, uh, that can exclude that there were gunshots from, from, from both sides. And it's, it's, it's certainly extremely difficult to pinpoint uh, who exactly shot whom at what point in time. So within a day or two of that, I guess, uh, Yanukovych flees the country. Why? Did he lose the support of the military? I... Uh, well, we can we can we can only theorize at this point whether the, what would be the situation if he decided to push for the for the for the violent uh, uh, scenario. Um, probably yes, there, 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 there was there was still such a possibility, but uh, I mean I mean we, we 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 were not there, so we do not know. What what we do know is that for one reason or for another, he decided not to radicalize the situation even further and uh, finally to flee, to flee the country after having received uh, guarantees of security and the corridor from, from the Russian. Um, did he plan to return afterwards uh, uh, on the back of, of the Russian forces? This is very probable. Again, we don't know that. Uh, this, is, this would be a counterfactual um, what we do know again is that the elite, that was the not the military but the political and economic elite, uh, the oligarch, the famous oligarchs who had supported uh, Yanukovych previously, were very quickly um, already by the time they were in disarray, uh, large factions of the of the elite uh, declare that they do not support the president anymore. They they stand against. Uh, uh, against Yanukovych and the last straw was probably the party of regions so his own party the the political structure which was very centralized and which basically governed the country uh, declared that they uh, exclude Yanukovych from their own ranks because he did not uh, 
um, he turned out to be a traitor to his own party and so on and so forth. Well, the, so, the, the Ukrainian oligarchs that were pro-EU and thought they'd be richer oligarchs under the roof of the EU uh, must have been taken aback by his about turn uh, on the EU and, and his deal with uh, Putin. So it, I, I, am I correct? A significant section of the oligarchs would have wanted to get rid of him at this point. There was a the, the, there was no homogeneity in the elites about that. So the a large part, maybe the larger part of the uh, I'm not sure about that. So in, anyway, a significant part of the uh, of the oligarchs, yes, they were already oriented towards the West economically, uh, and um, they certainly did not want this uh, integration economic integration with Russia. The other part was uh, the other part saw no future uh, outside of the common market with Russia. So this is especially true for the manufacturers of um, of uh, machinery, of more complicated produ production, which was not competitive uh, in the West, but so so they produce for the Russian markets, and they were the most pro-Russian faction in the oligarchy. And then there were people who were generally in the middle, like, for example, exactly uh, this famous son-in-law of Kuchma, the oligarch named Viktor Pinchuk, whose main business is metal pipes. And um, he produces, uh, so uh, he, he, had, he had nothing good to expect from the integration with the, with the Russian economic space. Uh, because he would face, uh, he would be probably bought, uh, he would probably face a hostile acquisition very soon. But uh, he, his main market was in fact Russia for, for the pipes. Uh, the, the famous Russian uh, oil and gas industry bought his metal pipes uh, to, to, lay, to lay new pipelines. So, so there was uh, this ambiguity and for if we take, if we uh, if we impute uh, class interest for, for for the oligarchs as a whole at that point in time, it would probably be uh, to uh, uh, to stay within the status quo, so to remain uh, in this interstitial uh, political and economic space between the two empires, between the Russia and uh, Russia and the EU. Um, it looks like uh, objectively this has not simply been uh, tenable anymore because both the EU on its part and Russia on its part were be being more and more assertive and uh, they, 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 they were letting Ukrainians know that they, now they had to choose. And any kind of choice would be very painful for, for the economy and for the oligarchs either way. Either way. Let me park my next question about that. Just first of all, ask this just to wind this up. Um, a lot of the argument that tries to explain why Russia invaded and to some extent justify it is that the Americans manipulated 2014. And it was because of the American involvement uh, that Yukochenko uh, has to run and the uh, pro Western government comes to power. How how important was the American factor in all this? 
Well, there was this uh, video with Victoria Nuland handing out uh, uh, food for the protesters, which was yeah very amusing, and then and then it was used uh, thousands of times uh, to, to to prove American meddling. Um, frankly, I. I, I doubt, I mean, I, I certainly doubt very much that it was a planned event, that it was somehow guided from the very beginning to the very end. On the other hand, I see nothing uh, extraordinary in the probability that uh, the, that American um, secret services, that, I don't know, they, 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 that the American state in any case uh, was uh, following the situation closely uh, and uh, reacted accordingly, trying to adjust its policies. So this is, it would be strange if it would not have been the case as, as any- Yeah, they saw an opportunity and did whatever they could to manip manipulate the outcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but it seems to me that even, even, even so, um, I personally tend to believe that, uh, that nobody wanted actual, uh, uh, actually, to depose Yanukovych, because at, at least this was clear for clearly true for Ukrainian opposition. So for the parliamentary parties in the opposition, uh, they were extremely satisfied with this uh, decision, uh, this final decision, the last decision uh, to, taken jointly with Yanukovych about the uh, uh, elections um, that should take place uh, a year later about uh, the constitutional reform and something else, something else. So they got their power and they, they, there was no reason for them. I mean, they, they did not push for anything more than that. I think this is one of those moments where we can safely uh, acknowledge uh, the free play of social forces at hand, uh, the, the, the moment of extreme weakness of the state but also of the opposition. So the crowd, which is not, not securely controlled by anyone and also not neither by, by the American intelligence services. And uh, so the, the moment of, extremely, of, of extreme uh, undecisiveness uh, of, of, of the lack of a de determination in which it is enough for a random guy to jump out, jump up on the stage and say, yeah, like what the what the hell are we going to settle on this now? Are we did we spill our blood for the for Yanukovych to remain president one more year to just electrify crowd and to push it into uh, into the direction into which it did not it was not going to to go like a minute before. Again, but there, can, but there are television channels owned by oligarchs who are really yeah. promoting this, right? It's not just the random guy. They were promoting what and at what point? There were television channels that, uh, during the course of the of these protests, uh, uh, during the weeks that that they lasted, that uh, they uh, reoriented their politics towards basically supporting or at least or at least uh, covering these protests. Yes, that is so. But I'm speaking about this very very short and decisive moment of when when the mood changed from. Okay, surely we all support uh, these, the protesters and we want uh, the opposition to prevail. And now that opposition seems to have prevailed with these accords, everything seems to be, seems to be fine. And then afterwards, uh, this all suddenly changes into, yeah, let's get down Yanukovych, let's uh, just get killed and killed and blah, blah, blah. And boom, 
this is uh, not something that was supported institutionally non explicitly or implicitly a, by way of uh, propaganda on the TV, that was not the case. Then afterwards, after the change of the power, surely the TV and everyone else adjusted themselves. And, and after the change of government, the, there's a lot of suppression of pro-Russian forces, right? There is this, yes, there is this conflict, um, which, so there, there is this um, government in Kiev, which takes uh, place of the president that has uh, fled the country. Uh, it is all very un, uh, unclear legally. I mean, yeah, you call it a coup. Yeah, it can be called that. You can call it also a revolution. It's, it, is, it, is more, it, it is more pleasantly sounding, but basically this relates to the same events if you, if you are a lawyer. Um, yeah, so, uh, so there is this climate of uncertainty and, and, and genuine uh, fear. In the uh, in the southern and eastern regions, which is uh, opportunistically certainly exploited by 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 uh, by Russia on one hand, which uh, heats up the situation, but also by the by a part of Ukrainian oligarchs who see in these protests who see the opportunity to gay, uh, to negotiate for a bigger piece of the pie in the new political configuration. So let's get back to present day and, and we're going to talk again another time and do more history. Um, I, I know that, you know, you're, you, if I understand correctly, you're arguing no to NATO and no to Russia, that there should be an independent Ukraine and you're part of a socialist website. You're, you know, your, your vision's an independent socialist Ukraine, uh, if I have it right. Um, what, what was the, your ability to organize in Ukraine? To what extent, either from Zelensky and government forces and or the far right, to what ex extent was the left targeted prior to the invasion? It was not exactly the object, an object of political, I mean, it was not targeted as a, as a political agent simply because it is too weak, <laughs> the left in Ukraine. So starting, starting from these events from 2014, the left were, at, at, the, at that point, they, uh, they, they, they lived through an enormous split, as did the Russian left, by the way. So the Ukrainian uh, crisis managed to, to, to split uh, the left in, in both countries. Uh, and- um, what, what was the nature of the split in Ukraine? Which uh, party to which uh, which part of the conflict to support? So they were they were they were the left who saw their chance uh, who saw the chance to promote their agenda at the Maidan. Uh, so who who tried to align their uh, a socialist agenda with the demands of, of the of the Euro Maidan protesters, uh, and uh, they were the left who did the uh, diametrically opposite thing, who went to the, uh, who joined the protesters uh, in Odessa, in Kharkiv, in Donetsk, uh, uh, hoping that there would be a political opening for them in, new, in the new regimes of, in the separatist republics. In Eastern Ukraine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
Yes. Of which, so, of which much, much of the Russian left supported them. I mean, in Russia, there was also a split. I, I don't know which was the larger part or not, but yes, certainly, certainly there was an important part, maybe of the larger part of the Russian left that went for the support of, 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 of Ukrainian separatism. So basically for the support of their own government um, in hoping that this is uh, some kind of a working class uprising simply for the for the simple fact uh, that red flags were tolerated at one in one in one place and not tolerated in the other place so this was already enough for some people to make their decision well yeah well let, let's end with with this uh, whether one however one analyzes this and i'm talking now about progressive people outside of ukraine um, Almost everybody agrees, either wholeheartedly or half-heartedly, that this invasion is illegal. Um, these laws about respecting sovereignty and territorial integrity, at least as far as I am concerned, are not there primarily to defend the government and elites of these countries. It's to defend the populations of these countries from being slaughtered. And, and the law is very clear, UN Charter is very clear. You do not invade unless your country is under imminent threat. And the, 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 you know, while I don't think in terms of scale, there's any comparison between what Russia has done in Ukraine and what the United States did in Iraq. Um, and there's no comparison since World War II. And even if you include the fire bombings of Japan and the nuclear bombings of, of uh, Tokyo, I mean, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Uh, the, 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 there's no comparison that the largest, greatest war criminal on planet has been the United States. Uh, and it has to be seen, it's not a devil, it's just the dominating force of global capitalism. And when you're the dominator of global capitalism, you think you can do whatever the hell you want. On the other hand, all the big scale war crimes, including the war in Vietnam, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, I mean, they've all ended as debacles for the United States. On the other hand, that's another conversation. But the fact that Russia has violated international law in Ukraine, there's no need for a conversation of whether it's not as bad as what the Americans did. Yeah, okay, the Americans have killed far more people than anyone. But if you're Ukrainian right now, you're suffering from Russian invasion. And you know any abstract conversation about who's worse is kind of irrelevant. So all that said, what do you, what do you want? What do you, do progressive Ukrainians want from people outside, from the left outside? What should people do if they really want to show solidarity and respect for international law? First of all, I would continue your uh, your your thought, your, My your rant. idea. About <laughs> Um, I would I would uh, continue it, but by by reiterating the fact that it's it is high time to reassess uh, optics because uh, geopolitical reading exclusively geopolitical framework just simply does not do neither ethically nor analytically it doesn't help you to understand uh, and if you are thinking in terms of exclusive zones of influence and so on. Uh, Without admitting the agency of uh, actual of, of of working class men and women, uh, it, it is problematic 
from the leftist point of view, but it also doesn't help you to understand the reality. Uh, so, so yes, first thing is probably to to make it easier for Ukrainians uh, to relieve them of the responsibility to spend uh, to spend efforts explaining the legitimacy of their <laughs> resistance, right? Uh, which is so, which is something that Palestinians or Kurds doesn't do not have to do. So in that in their case, everything is clear for them. In the case of Ukrainians, they have to to to, to do lectures about the Ukrainian Nazis and and whatnot. Uh, now, in terms of actual solidarity, what what would be what would be a good idea to do mm, beyond uh, beyond the simple fact of supporting Ukrainian resistance at least morally? There is a, a campaign that uh, that some comrades in Ukraine as well as in the US already starting for canceling uh, Ukrainian debt, external debt, which okay, I don't have the figure in my mind, but it is very high. It is mostly a debt to the IMF. It only keeps growing. And certainly if we want the situation to improve somewhat, at least after the war, the way out would be in some kind of a Marshall Plan, which will not be possible without a debt relief. So this is uh, this is I would say the, the the area in which the efforts of the international left would be the most um, useful, the least controversial for them. So they do not have to to cheer for NATO. They have to fight the familiar enemy of the IMF, and this would be for the general good of everyone. Does there not also need to be a demand no NATO for Ukraine, even though as I there probably won't be. But and and what about this issue of once, at the very least, once the conflict's over, assuming it will be, uh, and assuming there's still a Ukrainian government that isn't the puppet Russian government, uh, to stop this militarization of Ukraine. Um, yeah. So which, again, which, which, let me just add, raises probably the thorniest question for the left that's mm -hmm. used to not wanting any militarization. What attitude should the left have, in your view, towards arming, further arming of Ukraine in the current moment? Well, um, this this attitude. I mean, I understand. I understand this uh, uh, this disposition, but it's. It. I must say that it is relatively recent, historically speaking, because traditionally the socialist movement has has grown up as a movement, as a phenomenon in the nineteenth century supporting the armed struggle of the Irish, of the Polish, of the Hungarians. In the 20th century, yeah, there was Vietnam, the African peoples and, 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 and all the other smaller countries which were supported. So, so this, is, uh, this is not, uh, there, were no, no, there was no talk about uh, stopping uh, arms uh, flowing to, the, uh, to Ho Chi Minh. Yeah, I mean, everybody, Understood. Everybody accepted that the USSR and the Ch and China uh, should should help uh, Vietnam fight militarily. So, uh, and uh, and I would I would probably share that position as as long as the war lasts. I I would see this as a justified position from my point from from the point of view of my understanding of socialism of, of leftist agenda. That that there should be support at as yes. at least as long as the war is on, 
Yes. That yes. the Ukrainian people should be armed. Uh, yes. There, there is a different question of uh, no-fly zone, which is extremely popular in Ukraine now, right now. Yeah, what's your uh, take on that? Zelensky, was it just yesterday, spoke to Congress again calling for no-fly zone. I mean, I, it seems that uh, the, the, the name, the very name is a bit uh, this, uh, misleading. So most, I reckon that most people who call for it simply don't realize what it in fact means. But Zelensky uh, it, must understand, it seems to me completely reckless on his part to keep pushing it. Anyway, I'm not, I'm not in his head, so I will not answer for him. But, uh, but the, from, from my, on my behalf, yeah, I can, I can agree that this is uh, one, of the, one of the more irresponsible demands and that, we, like, that nobody will win from, the, from a direct uh, con- confrontation between uh, the American and the Russian uh, air power. Uh, the, but yeah, people people just demand it because they 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 it's it sounds like uh, like a smart way of um, of preventing Russian uh, air force to bomb Ukraine. Sadly, there is no such a smart way to to just block Ukrainian uh, sky militarily, right? Uh, after the war, <laughs> uh, as for as for militarization and NATO and and, and stuff like this, I think. Uh, in order to get rid of this um, unipolarity uh, of, of, of the traditional cliches in the, in the, in the, West, in the leftist uh, statements, I, I, I'm thinking currently of uh, reformulating this traditional demand of, uh, of dismantling NATO. Sure, it should be dismantled. I mean, I'm, not, I'm no fan of the NATO. But I think what can be underlined here is the disequilibrium between the great powers and the small nation states. And so if in principle, I support disarmament of everyone in the world, I think we should do it progressively and we should start with the, exactly with the big powers, with the overarmed powers, be it uh, Russia or the US or the UK or China and so on and so forth. And maybe the first step would be to uh, to disarm, to, to for example, can, uh, destroy, let's say, nuclear arsenal. This is this is a demand that has been on the agenda since the 60s already, and uh, for a while it was. It looked like uh, like the nuclear weaponry does uh, is is a force for good that it prevents uh, bad stuff from happening, but now we see that is no more the case that uh, the nuclear deterrence, deterrence that the, the nuclear forces not deter uh, other nuclear forces from, from, from doing bad stuff. So I think we can all agree about that. We can also agree about uh, stores of other weapon that is current, that is already kind of uh, destroyed, uh, that is already kind of uh, con- uh, uh, denounced and even outlawed by the international law, such as cluster bombs, cluster munitions, uh, thermobaric munitions, phosphorus uh, bombs, which nevertheless uh, were used in Syria, which are now used in Ukraine, no phosphorus bombs so far, but the, other, the others, yes. Uh, and um, which all leads me to think that the greatest out uh, takeaway from, from this war it should probably be 
some radical reassessment, reinforcement of the UN as a as an international governance agency. I mean, yeah, you're you surely you are skeptical as we all are, mm. but I don't see any other way as uh, so. Maybe this this can be a part of a utopian, if you will, uh, reasonably utopian, reasonably reformist leftist agenda of rebuilding re this world, making it safer. In terms of the nego peace negotiations going on right now between Ukraine and, and Russia, should the Ukrainian government simply take two things off the table, clearly, no NATO and there'll never be nuclear weapons in Ukraine? Why not say it? To me, this does sound reasonable. Uh, the question is uh, rather about its political acceptability to uh, to the to Ukrainians because uh, in in the current situation. So today, and uh, as as long as Ukraine is not defeated militarily, so as long as people do not feel that there is no other option. And so in this situation where, where, where when there is still resistance and it is reasonably successful, it is uh, it will not be accepted. It will not be acceptable politically, so by, uh, domestically. To me, maybe it is unfortunate. I mean, it is unfortunate because I, I'm not, I don't uh, argue for NATO membership of Ukraine. So I would be fine with it personally, but such is the situation. And, and, and unfortunately also it looks like Putin also has no, has no uh, possibility or no uh, incentive to back, to back off, which is why we will probably not see anything good coming out of negotiations at this stage. Hmm. All right, well, on a rather pessimistic note, um, at any rate, uh, I would say as far as progressive people outside, the I think one, yeah, we should demand from the Ukrainian government those two things, no NATO, never nuclear weapons, uh, which I think are probably never happening anyway. So they might as well say it. The idea that for some supposed prestige, you can't say it. But mind you, there's nothing unique about that to Ukrainians. That's been the road to hell in so many situations. And in fact, this, this inability or, uh, to accept anything that might lower prestige is that fundamental to US policy and is the, exactly the kind of thing that could lead to nuclear war. And, and it's the same thing for the Russians. Uh, the, this, this bullshit that you can't look weak uh, is more important than anything else. It's the thing that's gonna, could kill us all. I'm just following Ukrainian social networks, so I can so I I can comment on that. It's even not about prestige for the people at this stage. It's just a, the, I see many megabytes of texts with the moral outrage about the Westerners who, yeah, who like refuse to um, to do anything uh, substantial militarily for Ukrainians, like in the in their view. Um, so who do not protect them, but uh, but they but then they also have the audacity to demand uh, from Ukraine, which is like which is clearly the victim here, to uh, to do concessions to the ag aggressor. Well, so let me just add the second part of what I was saying, which is the first thing. Obviously, is Russia needs to get the hell out of the Ukraine before anything, even perhaps before there's any concessions. But whatever. 
the the invasion is illegal, it should it should end. Uh, I mean, I think that's I think, and most people are saying that. Even people that get into sort of a mitigated, complicated argument are also saying Russia should get out. Uh, so I mean, I think that's paramount position. But but playing uh, playing with the apocalypse which is a lot of, on all sides people are doing is nuts. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, I, I agree with you completely. It's just that uh, my remark was just simply about the, rather the rhetoric. So for example, if, uh, if you are a leftist organization, an ambitious leftist organization, which is preparing a statement, it's probably a bad idea to put a resolutive uh, uh, part of it, like to formulate it like, yeah, we demand from Russia to withdraw and from Ukraine to, uh, yeah, to promise uh, to swear that they will not join the NATO because this uh, the modality of the exp yeah, but but uh, substantially uh, this is exactly yes, this is normally uh, I think uh, this this should be an acceptable outcome uh, in any reasonable scenario. Okay, I hope we talk again soon. Thanks very much. Thank you, and thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. <laughs>